Well, bond yields continue to rise in the US and across Europe. Aussie 10 years also rising on futures overnight. So what's driving this sell-off? We'll look at that today. Plus, the Bank of England goes for 25 basis points, but says inflation will fall over the next few months, but they're going to keep raising grades anyway, possibly. And non-farm payrolls tonight, if they exceed expectations or they fall short, can we expect a reaction? Somehow, even if they're spot on the forecast, I feel somehow someone's going to find a reason to respond. And the RBA, the Statement of Monetary Policy, maybe there will be a surprise in the forecast today. It's Friday, the 4th of August, 2023. It's the morning call from NAB. Good morning. And later on today, the first edition of our weekend edition of the morning call. Slightly less timely information than we have in the morning edition, uh, but the scope for us to explore a subject in more detail, like housing, which is what we're talking about this week with Eliza Owen from Call Logic, talking about, amongst other things, which housing sectors are bouncing back the fastest. A 18% rebound in monthly finance for first home buyer lending um, between February and May, um, compared to the investor space, which is is higher overall, but it's um, bounced back 10%. Now, that podcast will be available from around 3 o'clock Australian Eastern Standard Time today, this Friday and every Friday. If you subscribe to the morning call on a podcast app, then that's going to appear waiting for you just uh, just where you find the morning call. Now, let's get on to this morning because quite a lot happening, quite a lot of bond movement today. 10-year treasuries have gained 11 basis points. They almost reached 4.2%, which is the highest for the year so far. German bunds and UK gilts are up 7. 7 seems to be the number in quite a few European countries this morning. Aussie 10 years were up 8 basis points yesterday to 4.1%, up another 5 basis points on top of that on futures overnight. Japanese 10 years edged slightly further forward, up 3 basis points to 0.64% now. It is a very slow road to 1%, isn't it? And the Aussie dollar has regained some of its losses of the last few days, but only 0.2% up. It's around 65.5 US cents now. The US dollar... Ever so slightly on the slide on the DXY this morning, the Japanese yen is the main mover. It's up around half a percent with a small fall in the pound, a small rise in the euro. And when I see small, I mean less than 0.1 percent. Hardly worth talking about. Uh, U.S. equities are still down, but only just the Nasdaq closed down 0.1 percent. The S&P 500 is down 0.3 percent. The Dow has lost 0.2 percent. But straight after the close... Amazon Q2 net sales, 22.1 billion versus 21.7 billion expected. Their share price up almost 8% straight away in after hours trade. I'll give you the, uh, the Apple results at the end of the podcast. Bigger falls in equities in Europe. The Eurostox 50 down 0.7%, 0.8% for the DAX and 0.4% off the FTSE 100. Equities were down in Japan yesterday as well. The Nikkei down 1.7%. The ASX closing 0.6% yesterday and oil bouncing back 2.6% percent added to WTI, 2.3% for Brent, which is back over 85. Uh, that might be the easiest thing to explain today because the Saudis announced an extension to their 1 million barrels a day production cut into September and maybe beyond. But let's talk about those higher yields this morning. Sally Old joins me from JB Weir in Sydney. So it is non-farm payrolls tonight. We had that high number on the ADP report yesterday. Bond yields are rising. Equities are decidedly choppy. There's obviously a bit of nervousness around right now ahead of those numbers. But I mean, we'll talk about that report in a moment specifically. But Treasury yields pushing higher. The curve steepening. It's not just data, is it? What, what is this telling us? Why, why does this sell-off in, in bonds continue? Yeah, good morning, Phil. Well, I, I think it's a combination of things. So the curve is, you know, what we would call bearishly steepening, which you don't see a lot. Um, 
And it's generally not regarded as sort of overly healthy price action, but I think it's just a combination of things. You know, when we look at all the information that's accumulated over the last week, we had the the Bank of Japan making a pretty significant move on its uh, yield curve control. We had the Treasury, the US Treasury come out and announce that, you know, its net borrowing estimate for the third quarter was a trillion dollars, which was larger than, you know, most analysts. 30% larger. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Larger than most analysts expected. Um, a lot of the positioning surveys tell tell us that people are, you know, long bonds. So, you know, they've they've moved to be long duration. So um no one is, you know, really overly short. So that that can often um, you know, prompt sort of pretty violent moves. Um and then you've got this sense that actually the the US economy is is continuing to prove pretty resilient, as you mentioned, strong ADP numbers. And then of course tonight we have the payrolls release. Um, and so maybe a little bit of nervousness um, a- ahead of that. So it sort of feels like it's a conflation of lots of different factors um, that have pushed yields higher in the last couple of days. Yeah, and it's not just straight 10-year treasuries, is it? So TIPS, the inflation-protected treasuries, I mean, their yields are on the rise as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, so we're seeing sort of nominal and, and real yields go higher, um, which is interesting, but that's that's effectively the soft landing thesis, right? Inflation is well-behaved, Um and growth is stronger, and so you know there's scope for both real and nominal yields to lift. Well, let's look at that soft landing then, because uh, I've got a case for and against it uh, right in front of me. <laughs> so the case for the soft landing, uh, the good news, the initial jobless claims in the US rose ever so slightly. Labor costs for Q2 down from 3.3% to 1.6% in Q2, much lower than expected. And uh, productivity, non-farm productivity has turned around from minus 1.2 up to 3.7, which, I mean, that all sounds, put all that together, that sounds a bit disinflationary. So that's soft landing. Absolutely. So, you know, the the productivity numbers were were good, better than analysts expected. Um, And and that's a positive for inflation because, you know, as we know pretty well here in Australia, as our Reserve Bank governor has been saying, you know, if wage growth is fine, but it needs to be accompanied by some some productivity growth in order for it not to threaten the inflation outlook. So we can put a tick in that box uh, for the US. And as you said, um, jobless claims, they're up a little bit, like 6,000 in the week. Um, but the a- actual level of, of claims still remains pretty low. And I think that's probably broadly consistent with ongoing strength in, in the labour market. So you know, on net, I think it was a, a sort of set of labour market data on general that are pretty favourable to inflation, but also reflect an economy that's humming along pretty nicely. So, um, you know, the soft landing thesis lives another day. Right. But uh, the not quite so soft landing. So the services ISM has slowed a little. It's gone from 53.9 down to 52.7. The employment index for services down from 53.1 to 50.7, which, of course, the Fed would say, well, that's, you know, that's a good thing if we're seeing a, a less tight labour market. Uh, but prices rising, the ISM services price index has gone from 54.1 to 56.8. Now, that was been on a, a downward slide since the second half of that, uh, last year. But it's going the wrong way now. Yeah, so that's probably the one piece of data that, um, you know, isn't cooperating with the, the soft landing thesis, and uh, particularly that, that uh, services prices um, indicator. But generally speaking, you know, yes, the, the services ISM came off a bit more than people were expecting, but the broad level of it, sort of hovering just under 53, I think is is sort of neither really here nor there. And one of the stories that a lot of macroeconomists have been talking about is actually, we're actually at that point where it feels like conditions are in place for a bit of a lift in the manufacturing sector. Um, and that's likely to occur at the same time when 
you know, we just get a bit more of a moderation in the services sector. And so what you get is some resolution in that really quite extreme divergence between uh, all the indicators on manufacturing and indicators on on services. And so that divergence should start to to narrow in, in coming months, which is a bit more usual. And maybe, you know, last night's data on the services ISM is, is you know, a, a piece of evidence that tells us that's exactly what's in train. Well, you know, people are getting their proper jobs back now, aren't they? So they're spending less time sitting in the cafe. So it's finding its, uh, it's finding its balance, maybe. Uh, look, it's not a soft landing for the UK, though. The Bank of England lifted rates by 25 basis points. More to come. It wasn't a unanimous decision. One of them wanted to keep on hold. Uh, but Andrew Bailey predicts inflation is going to get down to 7% in uh, the July CPI report, down to 5% in October. So this is expecting it to fall quite a bit. Obviously, a lot of that is base effect. But um, he's still there's still this expectation of one, maybe two more rate rises, just as this inflation is starting to fall. I mean, quite a, a significant fall. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, I guess the the sort of broad story for the Bank of England is that they've just been persistently surprised on the upside by both inflation and, and wages growth for most of, of this year. And so, you know, I think for that reason, they're probably a little bit cautious. And it was interesting because, you know, we had one... Um, committee member who wanted to, to hold, but there are also two who wanted to lift by 50 basis points. So I guess it sort of tells you that when they sat down around the table, everything was, you know, all options were on the table. Um, and in the end, they, they lifted by 25, which I think shows, you know, a, a certain data d- dependency to what they're doing. So they obviously, you know, like a, a lot of other countries had a, a better than expected inflation number, and that probably took the pressure off them from having to deliver another 50 but yes, I mean, you know, if you look at their projections, yes, inflation comes down, but they're also talking about, you know, the, the possibility that it comes lower, but not low enough. Um, and so even if they were to, to to sort of get to the end of the tightening cycle, effectively, they're putting the market on notice and saying, look, there's a, a strong possibility that even when rates peak, um, inflation is not where we want it to be. And we just have to hold them at quite restrictive levels for an extended period just to almost squeeze out that last bit of inflation um, so they're giving absolutely sort of no hint that, you know, they're, that they're looking forward to the point where they'll be cutting rates. It's, it's really a question of, you know, do they finish the cycle at five and a half or do they have to go to, to somewhere closer to six? Um, and then it's probably, you know, I think a, a wait and see from there. So the market's still expecting a bit more. The forward guidance was, was sort of broadly unchanged and retains the tightening bias. Um, and so for that reason, you know, I don't think there was a, a whole lot new in, in today's statement from the Bank of England. It's They're dealing with high inflation and there's more to go on the tightening cycle. The MPC will ensure the bank rate is sufficiently restrictive for sufficiently longer to return uh, and sufficiently long to return inflation to the 2% target. Who'd have thought that? Uh, I tell you, though, if um, Andy Haldane had been on the board, there would have been two people uh, wanting to hold. In fact, he, you know, he might even be talking cuts because he's been quite an open critic lately saying that they are, they're going too far, basically. There's a, you know, sort of like a, a few voices like that, aren't there, in the in the wilderness? Yeah, which always happens, I think, when you get close to the peak, um, you know, because that's the difficult part for a central bank. You know, you know you've done a lot, but and then it's a question of, well, do we need to do no more or a little bit more? Um, and so that's the they're, the, they're the more challenging decisions. It's easy when rates are close to zero, you know, that you've got to go higher, but it's a much, much more nuanced decision when rates are already at 5%. So uh, not a lot of currency moves today. Uh, the yen, probably one of the biggest moves. Uh, we saw Japan's 10-year yields rise. Uh, not far because, of course, the Bank of Japan stepped in again. Yields did get up to 0.66%. 
uh, it looks like, you know, it's going to take a while to get to 1% if they keep on stepping in. Uh, so it's a very slow path that they are treading, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the difficulty with trying to exit a policy, um, you know, such as the one that the Bank of Japan's been in for, you know, a long, long time now. It's that, you know, it's it's difficult to engineer in a smooth way. And and they will have observed, you know, the, the difficulties that, for example, the RBA faced when it tried to exit yield curve control a couple of years ago. Um, and and so it's this whole idea of wanting to give themselves a bit more flexibility given how rapidly economic conditions are evolving in Japan, um, but trying to engineer that in a way that's not massively disruptive to the JGB market. So it's almost like, you know, giving with one hand and, and sort of taking with the other and they're trying to manage their exit, um, you know, from, from a particular policy stance. So this is probably going to be business as usual, I suspect, for the Bank of Japan for the next couple of months as they sort of try and let the market adjust but do it in a fashion that's, you know, not massively disruptive to financial conditions and, and other financial markets, um, which is, of course, I think probably a job easier said than done. So quite a bit of caution in the markets, isn't there, right mm. now? And I'm sure part of it is the question mark over non-farm payrolls. I mean, equity markets really not quite sure where to go. So they could add a bit of volatility, especially if we see job growth growing more than expected or less than expected. I think the, the expectation is around 200,000, which, of course, is way less than the ADP numbers yesterday. But we've learned that maybe there's not a lot of a tie in between the two. Yeah, they don't seem to correlate too well sort of month to month. Um, but yes, I think they have the market sort of on edge that the risks are maybe biased towards a, a stronger number than the 200 that the consensus has settled on. And, and if, if we get something close to 200, you know, that, that would be one of the softer numbers we've seen in, in a couple of years. Um, so, you know, markets looking for unemployment rate to be unchanged at 3.6% and actually for a slowing in um, a modest slowing in, in wages growth or every hourly earnings as they're presented in the, the report tonight. So that's meant to sort of slow a little bit from 0.4 last month down to 0.3. So again, it's a bit of a Goldilocks outcome. You still get some decent jobs growth, wages growth cools a bit and unemployment rate um, doesn't move. Right. And Canada are looking for the same Goldilocks outcome. They they have their numbers out, their payroll numbers out at exactly the same time. The unemployment rate expected to pick up a bit from 5.4% to 5.5%. I mean, mm-hmm. they were They've gone from 5% to 5.5% if that happens in in pretty quickish time, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. They're a little bit unusual uh, in that sense in that, you know, there's quite a few economies where not much is happening uh, on the unemployment rate, you know, despite a lot of tightening like the US and obviously Australia would be one. But, yeah, the Canadians have started to get some upward drift in in their unemployment rate and as did the Kiwis earlier earlier this week. So, you know, maybe that gives central bankers elsewhere, you know, a little bit of hope that similar dynamics will be taking place in their own economies. And, you know, with that comes a bit more comfort that perhaps enough might have been done on rates just to to engineer that nice descent of inflation back to target consistent levels. And the RBA statement of monetary policy is out uh, today. It's going to be mm. a lot easier, isn't it, when we start to get it on the same day as the uh, they, they make the rate announcement. But is they, I mean, this obviously has a, uh, a all the new forecasts in it. So uh, are we expecting any surprises there, though? Yeah, so I think this one will be interesting because um, when we look back to the statement on Tuesday where they do give a little bit of a, a sort of hint or a preview of, of what we might expect to see in, in the new set of forecasts, 
sort of felt like not much had changed with respect to the growth and, and unemployment rate forecasts. But they did seem to hint that, you know, maybe um, the the return to target of inflation could have been pushed back by six months, um, which, you know, if that's the case, that's that's a sort of reasonably significant move because the governor has noted on a number of occasions, you know, this year that it was already a, a sort of longer return to target relative to many of their peers. And the reason they were happy to accept that was because they thought it allowed them a better chance of, you know, not disrupting the labour market too much. But, you know, with that came the caveat that there was no room for error on in the inflation trajectory. So if, in fact, that's the case, you know, I think that's sort of quite quite interesting given that they've pushed it back another six months um, and yet that wasn't enough to to get them over the line to to lift rates uh, earlier this week. So I think that'll be the probably the focus um, for most analysts when that report comes out later this morning. Right, so higher for longer would be implications for that then, wouldn't it? Which, um, I mean, that's that's been the expression of uh, 2023, hasn't it? Yeah, indeed. And, and I think, you know, this is the interesting thing about Australia, which is that, you know, in other jurisdictions, you're actually starting to see things like um, energy prices uh, and also housing costs or rents, you know, start to move in more favourable directions for the inflation story. And here in Australia, um, you know, they're, they're actually <clears throat> pushing pushing inflation higher. And so, you know, I think there's, a, th- th- there's an interesting story that's starting to emerge, which is that, you know, while there's sort of good news that, that is occurring in inflation narratives and in some other countries, you know, it's, it's quite possible that that doesn't really get replicated to the same extent here in Australia. And we might, we might have a bit of a narrative around sort of diverging inflation trajectories and the RBA being sort of presented with a stickier, you know, sort of a bit more challenging in inflation backdrop in the back half of this year, but we'll see. Do you know what? That sounds sounds like a good topic, doesn't it, for one of our new weekend uh, podcasts, it actually, does. to look at that divergence. Yeah, Indeed. so uh, maybe we, maybe even you could come on and talk to us about it, Sally, perhaps. Wouldn't uh, that but- be marvellous? <laughs> anyway, good to talk today, and uh, we'll catch you soon. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Phil. And Apple earnings for Q3, 81.8 billion, only just slightly ahead of the 81.7 billion that was expected. 19.9 billion quarterly profit. So earnings per share, $1.26, quite a bit ahead of the uh, $1.19 expected, but shares uh, down about 1.4% in early after hours trade. So there we are. And that's it for today. I am back again this afternoon for the weekend edition of the morning call. Hope you can join me for that. I'm Phil Dobby for NAB. Uh, otherwise, I'll see you on Monday morning. Thanks for listening.